I mean, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. Neither me or Dale had any money. He was a really good chef. I'd worked in shops since the age of 13. So we got going. And the one thing we did have was a very clear idea that we wanted to make food that looked and tasted homemade. Brand Growth Heroes is the business podcast for the founders of food, beverage, and other consumer goods brands, and is ranked in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Cook is an award-winning frozen meals company based in the UK. Its turnover of £130 million comes from its own manufacturing facilities, 98 retail stores and 1,000 concessions. Some 28 years from its first year in trading, the business still doesn't sell to any major grocery retailers. Founder Ed Parry tells me how he has managed to keep the business 100% privately owned, how their passion for creating a great company culture plays a central role in what they do, and how, to achieve their mission, they still cook using the same ingredients and techniques that a good cook would use at home. Ed Parry of Cook, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I am in really good form, back from holiday, energised, temporarily. No, lovely to be here. That is great. Where were you on your holidays? I was in Canada, um, staying with a friend of ours in the beautiful wilderness, four hours north of Toronto, and it was completely idyllic and lovely, and I wish I was still there. Was there any 3G signal? There was no 3G signal. There was no Wi-Fi. The teenagers couldn't have their phones. They had to go and do real-life outdoor activities like teenagers should be doing. Wow. Uh, Good for them, good for me. Um, It was great. That's amazing. So look, um, I have loved Cook since I lived in London in Clapham, uh, believe it or not, in the late, well, the late 1990s, early 2000s. And I found this amazing shop, which was called Cook, obviously, on Abbeville Road. I did not live on Abbeville Road because I wouldn't have been able to afford to. But the odd Saturday, we would walk around in awe looking at uh, all the houses there and have a little coffee. And I remember going into Cook looking at all these freezers with all this homemade food, thinking, this is just genius. If I was a bit older and had a bit more money, this is what I'd be buying all the time. How did you start the business? Um, And, you know, was that one of your first shops? I think that was shop number about 10, something like that. Uh, 10 already at that point. About 10. And so the business started in 1997. Uh, Well, 96, actually. The first shop opened in 97 um, when I was 25. and. Uh, and yeah, so we started it, uh, with, a. I had a, found a partner called Dale, who was a chef and we got a small bank loan of 24,000 pounds. We got 12 grand off NatWest and, um, 12 grand off, uh, HSBC. My parents lent us 6,000. So we actually had total budget of 30,000 set up a commercial kitchen and a shop um found a little shop in Farnham in Surrey it was about 200 square foot and the idea I mean we didn't have a clue what we were doing neither me or Dale had any money he was a really good chef I'd worked in shops since the age of 13 because my parents had a couple of little coffee shops 
Um, so we got going and the one thing we did have was a very clear idea that we wanted to make food that looked and tasted homemade. We had a founding statement that said that, so always very clear on the type of food that we wanted to make, which was reflected in, which came from how my mother, who was a full-time working mum, she used to cook at the weekends, she'd make a big batch of chili con carne or something, um, which she would feed us, there were four of us, four kids, and uh, she would feed us free some, had a big chest freezer at home. So we had lo loads of old ice cream tubs uh, with sort of a bit of chicken casserole in or chili con carne. Okay. She'd bring that out on a Tuesday, heat it up. And it was always really good. So I always sort of knew that frozen food could taste, look and taste homemade. Um, it was Can just I just ask a question there? So no. you were only 25 at this point. You didn't have kids of your own. I don't think at that point, did you? No. So how did you know that other families felt the friction of not being able to feed their kids or their family have good food homemade food ready to go I mean how did you know that instinctively or was it just a oh I'd like to I mean was there a was there an understanding of the mark of the market friction no I was 25 I hadn't got a clue but I did I, I suppose it I, I suppose it was just a belief and it felt like common sense okay you know? it just felt like a common sense surely surely somebody should be able to make and then sell a frozen chicken casserole surely that has got to be useful to people right uh, and you know i've been into the supermarkets and back then ready meals in the supermarkets in 97 this is before Rubbish. charlie biggin came along or anything like that you had ms doing some stuff but it was it, it was really bad yeah. and it was just that belief there's got to be a better way than this yeah yeah absolutely okay so you so you started your first shop with the bank loan how did you find your kind of you, know, you got your commercial kitchen first right Correct. Yeah. And then talk talk us through what happened then. So we found this uh I mean Dell Dell found this disused pizza um delivery place and it was due to be knocked down to become a drive-through McDonald's and we managed to persuade the landlord to let us have it 50 quid a week, but it was on the condition that it could be knocked down with six months' notice once McDonald's had got themselves together. But we thought, well, that's cheap, we'll have it. And he found some secondhand equipment. And, um, you know, looking back on it now, it's it's so it's so clear to me that the having the idea, setting up a shop, relatively simple, making the food is where all the complexity lay, and it still does. Making the food is really, really difficult. And actually, if anyone else apart from Dale, it wouldn't have worked. I just got super, 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 super lucky with him. And you make all your own food still? Yeah, yeah. So so we still, so 92% of what we sell. We've got 98 shops now. Um, we will have sales of about 130 million. We've got a thousand concessions. And 92% uh, of what we sell in the shops, we make ourselves. So we've got four big kitchens. Um, it's unbelievable. I mean, what a success story. And you're still privately owned. We're still privately owned. Um, it's yeah, it's been painful retaining private ownership, a lot of sacrifice along the way. I think we've managed to pay two dividends in 25 years. <laughs> so, I think we'll go into that. We'll go into that towards the, the end of the show because yeah. know that it's you know so different nowadays for young founders compared to what it was like when in, in, in the late 90s and the, and the early 2000s. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and how you've how you set out to well we'll talk about that again because it's really interesting so so now you are 130 million in turnover you have 98 stores thousand concessions which basically means cook freezers in other people's stores right correct yeah so it's so we have we 
put put the freezers in. Well, actually, the retailer pays for the freezers. We put the point of sale material in, but we won't have our products sold alongside the frozen peas and the Harvey does. We've got to be in our own space. That's the sort of that's the condition. So it's sort of lots and lots of farm shops, delis, independent retailers, but not the big four supermarkets. So it's a store within a store. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's genius. So okay, and how many people work for Cook now? Sixteen hundred. Oh my um, god! I mean, you're a significant employer as well. Yeah. So so yeah. So people. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of responsibility, and I think you know every part of our business is very people intensive. Uh, whether it's working in the stores, but most mostly in in the production sites. Quick one. I'm thrilled to share that Strong Roots is continuing their support of Brand Growth Heroes for another season. Finding quick and easy meal solutions that are also better for you can be a real challenge for busy families like mine. That's where Strong Roots comes in for us. Their veg-packed frozen foods make it incredibly easy to enjoy delicious plant-based meals that everyone in my family loves, whilst doing a little good for the planet too. We love their sweet potato fries, crispy cauliflower hash browns and yummy spinach bites. Honestly, their products are a lifesaver for us on busy weeknights. What's even more important though is that Strong Roots is committed to using clean ingredients that are better for you and better for the planet. They're actually one of the pioneers in terms of having their carbon cloud on the front of pack for full transparency of their impact on the planet. And as a B Corp, they're committed to improving this number as well as all the ways they do business. I've been fortunate enough to work with Strong Roots since 2016 and I'm proud to support a company that's always striving to do better. So head to the freezer aisle and try Strong Roots for yourself. Don't forget to look at their ingredients on the back of pack. I think you'll be as surprised as I was at just how clean, tasty, frozen food can actually be. Thanks to the team at Strong Roots for their continued support this season. Good for you, good for the planet, good made easy. So one of the things, we, let's start with the way in which you make your food. You, we talked uh, before about vertical integration, and that's really fascinating. So that's the, the one, one kind of pillar of your business model is this idea of vertical integration. Tell our listeners how that works for Cook and you know how it means that you source the right produce and are able to make the food that you make in the right way. Yeah. So it, it's one of those things now that looks quite clever in the you know we control the route to market we make it we sell it and it's we're not at the whim of the big supermarkets and stuff and and yet you know back back in 97 when you know the, the it was like that back in 97 but it was complete i mean the whole thing's been a bit of a fluke really um we've just got lucky it just never back in 97 it never even occurred to us to supply a supermarket it was like well we want to make the meals we think people will like it families will like it there's nothing like it out there there's no way we could possibly supply the supermarket so the only way we're going to be able to get it to the customer is to open a shop because I mean, there was no d to c back then <clears throat> yeah no, no d to c uh there was no way of getting the product to market as a small producer it would have just been inconceivable to get into the supermarkets or any big retailer. So it's like, well, we've got to open a shop. So, um, and and as a result, the business model we never thought we are a vertically integrated business. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was just like we need a we need a bloody shop in order to be able to sell our stuff. Yeah. So the business has grown from that sort of fortuitous um, from, from that fortuitous point, but. Um, how vertically integrated do you go up the chain? So in terms of sourcing and, you know, working with farmers or working with producers? Yeah. 
talk to me about that 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 end of the integration so so we have so in terms of all our sourcing and stuff we i mean i i'm absolutely confident that you know where we get all our proteins from and stuff um is better than any other ready meal anywhere mark spence any anyone um all of the proteins and stuff have got um compassion from world farming awards and stuff stuff like that we make sure that the product comes from really really good places the biggest challenge we face as a business at the moment as we're you know we've started a sort of 10-year planning process and we see easily the biggest challenge being sourcing how do we go further up the chain um how do we work directly with farmers do we need to do we need to build a cutting plant so that we can have we can actually process all the meat ourselves rather than buying it from butchers and stuff like that? Because I think it's only by doing that that you can really, really control where it's coming from um, and the standards that go into it and stuff. I think there's a real problem in the food industry at the moment where there's this proliferation of certifications and the customer the customers just don't really know what any of them mean. Oh, organic's really important or this is important to us. That that's important. I think customers are really confused, and we yeah we see it as being a huge huge challenge for us in terms of to try and determine what our own standard is, and then communicate it out to the customer. It's funny, isn't it? Because <clears throat> there isn't that problem in Ireland because Board Bia. I talk about Board Bia so much on this show, <laughs> but the Irish Food Board Board Bia has done such a great job since the nineteen fifties of <clears throat> excuse me putting you know, board via standards in place for, you know, the consumer will know if, if, the, if, the, if, the, if it's produced in Ireland and board via has helped the producer that then it's going to be a certain standards. And they've recently brought in Argent Green, which means that it has to be produced in a, in a certain way. Whereas in the UK, the government just has never done that. And it takes blooming decades to get that inside the, the psyche of the consumer. Uh, so they've got a tough job ahead of them at some point. But it does mean this proliferation of standards that leaves everybody. I was reading the back of a um, cereal box the other day for the kids and there was about four or five badges that obviously head office had said, I think it was an Nestle cereal that they had to put on the back of, back of the box. I did know, not know what any of them were. There was right. like swirls and there was badges and there was boxes. I had no idea what any of them meant. Yeah, it's an absolute, it's total chaos out there. You know, you've got, you know, Red Tractor for a long time. But was like well known, but it, it doesn't mean anything. And actually the standards are really quite relatively low. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's a job to be done there. Okay. Um, so really important to you in terms of your your sourcing of your food. And then I was reading on your website, you know, you've got all of the, uh, your website's amazing, by the way. I hmm. was forwarding it to someone I'm working with <clears throat> who's not a competitor, don't worry. But I was taking screenshots to someone I'm coaching at the moment going, look at the homepage. The homepage really sells. It's a sales page, you know. And then straight away I can see the testimonials and straight away I can see, I can go straight through to selling because I'm, type in my postcode and straight away I can see favorite dishes uh, and my mouth was watering straight away but I had all of those three things you know in my face uh, which is which is brilliant and but the other thing I could see straight away was just how important um, your process is so from sourcing through to preparing you know prep just like in a kitchen and then cooking and I didn't and the photographs of people rolling out pastry I had no idea that everything was handmade still um 
like I said at the beginning, all the complexity in cookies uh, in making the food. If you've got a good product, it's relatively, relatively easy to sell it in the shops or in the concessions, as long as the product's good. So all of our focus is, I mean, I, the, I go back to the founding statement. The founding statement was to cook using the same ingredients and techniques that a good cook would use at home. So everything looks and tastes homemade. So it's absolutely vital that within the kitchen, that we actually hold ourselves up to that core brand promise. So again, we knew nothing at the beginning, but that that was, I look back on it now, that was a really good founding statement. And it's what has kept us honest, I suppose, as the business has grown over the years and in terms of how we do things in the kitchen. So if you were to visit one of our kitchen, you would see loads of people in the prep section, chopping up vegetables, dicing, marinating things, etc. That then gets passed on to the cooks who cook in brat pans they we can cook at about a brat pan is basically like a giant saucepan you can braise fry casserole but essentially though what's crucial about it is it's not a giant boiler which is what a lot of massive ready meal manufacturers or use we can have one chef controlling one brat pan sometimes two and in those brat pans they will cook like a good cook would so you're browning the onions and you're sweating them down or you're right. galvanizing the onions with the words and you're sweating them down, et cetera, et cetera. And you're only putting in the next layer of flavor when that's done. Correct. Absolutely. And that will only be done. That will not be a mechanized process. Right. After two minutes, this happens. That will happen when the chef thinks it's the right time to do it. So if you're cooking a roux, for example, you'll cook a roux, but you'll have 18 kilos of flour and 18 kilos of butter. It's a roux. It's a big roux but it's cooked as you would at home. And it's absolutely vital that we yeah. stick to that process. And um, But you guys are doing all this and it makes such a difference to flavour. when it's it's, uh, It makes a huge it's difference. Processed. I loved that on your website, you know, cooked, not processed. But that's, but you have to, you know, for business like ours, we've got shops and for people to come to one of our shops, they have to make a decision that they're not going to buy their ready meal in a supermarket. They're actually going to come visit one of our shops and so in order for the, the customer to do that you have got to have product that is differentiated yeah. from what they can buy in supermarkets if we were banging out beef bourguignon like you could buy in waitrose well there's no point in the business existing so there has to be a difference so the taste has to work and for that to actually for that to work we employ a lot of people in all of the kitchens, a lot of people. And so you have to have a culture where people give a shit at every single stage of the process because that is the, the great enabler for what we do is culture. If you don't have people in the prep section or the cooking section or the finishing section who care about what they're doing, the whole quality process can unwind really, really, really quickly. You're dealing with a lot of fresh ingredients, fresh human beings, and it's a fragile process if the culture isn't working. Bit like in a real kitchen, you know. I'm watching Bear at the moment. I don't know if you've watched it. Or I've just started it. It's amazing. It's the, yeah, loving it. The intensity and the stress. Someone uh, in in I think it was in the Times this weekend described it as every episode a mini panic attack. <laughs> panic attack and it is you know it's almost quite uncomfortable to watch it if you haven't watched it anyone it's it's on netflix at the moment it's an absolutely fabulous story about a chef who leaves uh the french laundry in new york to pick up his brothers unfortunately his dead brothers um and his family uh chicago beef sandwich uh restaurant and it's just fabulous but you get that idea there of 
you know, every single station is really important and everybody has to be really proud of their own station and the food that goes into their station and the process that goes into that they're cooking in order that that part becomes part of an amazing dish at the end. How do you, you talk to me about uh, your sister looking after the culture side of things and that she was brilliant at that. Tell us a little bit about that because running 1,600 people, that's a lot. Yeah, so so I've worked with my sister. Well, she joined in 2001. Uh, she'd worked in the city for a bit and then she joined us to do the people HR type stuff not that she'd ever done it before and she's then had three kids and then came back full-time from about 2010 and we've been running it together ever since and she really runs most of the senior team and I'm I'm hugely hugely lucky that I have her because there's absolutely categorically no way that I could run this business by myself Um, I've always worked in partnership with other people you know Dale has who I started the business with as a chef. He retired a couple of years ago. Um, my brother uh, from 2000, 2007, uh, who was great as well. He then left and brought the B Corp movement to the UK. And then my sister, and she's, I think, she is basically a culture genius. She's brilliant at managing the business, but she is, I honestly don't think there's anyone in the UK who knows more about building culture and organisations than her. She's sort of, it's her passion, her absolute passion. There is no point for her in working unless the people within the business are having a fulfilled experience. It is completely pointless. We could be making any amount of money and she simply wouldn't care unless the people within the business are sort of fulfilled and growing and all of that sort of stuff. So she is, she is a culture zealot. If you're the smart founder of a scaling brand and you're inspired by what you're learning on this podcast, why not check out our Brand Growth Heroes Accelerator program? Over the past three years, our bespoke framework, tools, and coaching has helped over 80 founders of early stage scaling brands make decisions that have supercharged their growth. The results have been phenomenal. Things like first listings in national retailers and airlines, doubling of revenues, new star products or key hires, or even offers from all five dragons on the den. The program offers you a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. We love you, Fiona. And you've been an incredible mentor to us. And your program was wildly helpful. So if anyone is thinking of doing it, we really recommend it and don't think we would be able to get here without having done it. So if you want the framework and tools that will help you make decisions that will take your growth to the next level, go to brandgrowthheroes.com and then click online courses. Then just press register your interest today. Thanks again to Strong Roots. Good for you. Good for the planet. Good made easy. I read that you have a kind of a back to work program or you integrate people who've left prison. I mean, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, well, that's something that, you know, that was something she brought in about six or seven years ago. It's called the Raw Talent Programme, um, R- Raw Standing for Ready and Working. So we bring people who've been to prison, people who've uh, had mental health problems. Uh, so we run programmes, we now run programmes in prison. To, um, but, but interestingly, the programmes that we run for two weeks are not about training in how to work in a kitchen or anything like that. It's basically training people how it how to have confidence in themselves just it's just basic uh building you back up building you back up building people back up again and so we've now got 146 people 
that work in the business who have been through this program. So it's pretty, pretty high percentage. Um, so we're doing, you know, it's and it's it, what's been wonderful about it. It's not only does it provide opportunities for people that wouldn't have otherwise had them. What's been great that we hadn't expected when we started the program is it's made it's made the business and the kitchens a kinder place. They're already kind of generous places, but when people work with people who've been disadvantaged, been to prison, I think there's a lot of people in society whose views are framed by the right wing media. People have done something bad, therefore hang them and flog them and all of that sort of stuff. And then as soon as they're sort of confronted face to face with somebody who's just made a mistake, you know, they made a mistake, might be a big mistake. And they would go, oh, they're just like you and me. Of course they are. And um, and so it's made everyone a bit more kind and generous in terms of how just how they are. So it's just it's been good for the business. It's been good for the people involved. And um, yeah, it's a cool part, cool part of what we do. What do you and think somebody what do you think somebody working in the prep section of your business if I was to kind of sneakily ask them what their job was like I mean or what the company was like to work for what do you think they'd say I think they'd say that um I think they'd say that our hearts in the right place um we try and do the right thing all the time they'd also probably say I wish the bloody kit wouldn't break so often and you'd spend a bit more money because you know, one of the things we've learned is that you can do all the you can do all the good culture things that you like. We do lots of things. We take people off site. The training program's amazing. We just sort of pr- promote everyone from within. We pay people well. Um, one of the things that's been brought home over the last six months is that I think we probably haven't invested enough money in into some of our sites, and so you get kit breaking. And you can do all the other good stuff, but if the slicing machine or the knives aren't working properly or the dishwasher isn't working properly. It really doesn't matter. It's the small stuff in people's work and life that really affects how people feel about their jobs. Um, but I think, you know, people are pretty well disposed towards business. And I think we I think one of the important things about culture is if you're trying to build it, you've got to have a whole architecture and it has to be done in a really intentional way. But it's also really important to measure it. If you're not measuring it, you could, it's really easy as the leader of an organization to kid yourself that you're doing a better job than you are. Okay. So we've been doing uh, the best company survey since 2012, and we've been in the top 100 for since 2012. And I think we're the only manufacturer in the top 100. The rest are sort of office-based businesses. And I think, I think if you're not measuring it, you're not taking it seriously. So we do the survey every year. It's not a perfect survey, but it's pretty damn good. Every year we find out stuff that we didn't know. It's like, oh, shit, we've got a problem over here. Oh, shit, we've got a problem over there. That's areas where we thought things were okay. So, you know, one, one of the things I implore all businesses I talk to who are serious about wanting to build culture is whatever measurement tool you choose to use, do measure it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. It's re- it's really inspiring to hear what what your business is like from a people perspective. And um, it's still a privately owned business. We mentioned that at the beginning. Uh, let's bring people back to the late nineteen nineties and what it was like in terms of the kind of you know being able to borrow money or the idea of having a business to sell it in the future. I mean, it was all so different back then, wasn't it? Back back then, it could not have been more different. And I I'm I'm just so glad that we were able to start in 1997 because I think there's no way we could have borrowed the kind of money 
um, that we ended up borrowing in the early 2000s. We were borrowing huge amounts of money. We're, we were making a loss consistently every single year, but the business was growing. But the banks, the banks were, they, they would give us almost anything we wanted, um, which of course led to the banking crisis in 2007-8. But we were huge beneficiaries of their munificence and stupidity. Um, it almost brought us to our knees in 2008, but we, we could borrow any amount of money more or less. So that was great for us because we always had a long term. We always wanted to stay private, you know, always, always wanted to stay private. Um, and so, there was yeah. no idea back then, was there? You know, there was no zeitgeist of having to find investment or having to find funding no. or seed rounds or crowdfunding. It just didn't exist. Did it? No. You, had, you launched a business, you owned the business, you got money from a bank or just it, there was no talk about investment back then very 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 little and i also think that one of the things i think that's i don't know what the right word is i don't i'm not sure i regret it i find it sad but the culture today of people setting up businesses and the nature of you've got almost got to go out and raise money which almost before you've started your business is committing yourself to some sort of exit in three five ten years time it didn't even occur to me it didn't even occur to me you know, when we started the business, that we were creating something to be sold. You know, we are creating something that should be around for a long time. Building a business, if, I mean, my I guess my mindset slightly comes from the fact that there are, on my mother's side of the business and father's side of the business, family biz, there are pe- family businesses that have been around for quite a long time. And it wasn't just, you don't create something just to go and sell it. And I think that it it's... You know, it's not a side hustle or a project, or you know, it's or a way to to better your your life quickly and step up a lot. It's not like flipping houses. It's a bit yeah. like the way people start businesses today. It's a bit like flipping houses, isn't it? A, a little bit, a little bit. And I know every people pour their hearts and souls into it, but I, I, business is really precious thing. You know, this when you start a business, you're employing people. You're you're trying to create something that people love. And, you know, we, we live in a world where, you know, there is huge unfairness and all sorts of things within society. And we can, you know, if we look to government, government can do a certain amount of stuff, but is horribly inefficient, no matter what your politics are. They're, they're, I think they're all pretty hopeless. Charities can do a certain amount in a very small way. But if we're going to live in a Gosh, I'm going to sound like a politician now, but but if we are going to live in a better and fairer society, then it's down to business and the capital that sits behind it to act more responsibly. Um, I really, really believe that, you know, in terms of the people we employ, the suppliers, um, the environment, it's business that is going to bring about positive societal change. And I think that when you have this requirement, if you're running a business, on behalf of the capital that sits behind it, that it's got to be sold in three years' time or whatever. I'm, I, I'm not convinced that you're going to make the kind of decisions that are right for either necessarily the business in the long term, or certainly not in the interest of society at large. You know, what, what I think society needs is more companies that are owned for the long term by responsible capital and stewarded by people that believe in the long term you know this I think that is brilliant I think that is absolutely brilliant uh, Ed I really do I really do because you do make different decisions uh, if you were thinking about a three to five year exit and you make decisions based on what are my investors going to want or need uh, in order that they invest the money in this and it's kind of like a 
little machine you're building that generates cash only for a certain number of people rather than a machine that grows slowly over time that generates a benefit for society as a whole. Yeah, and it's and it's really difficult because, you know, if you're in a manufacturing, to give you one example, two examples quickly, if you're in a manufacturing business like ours, you know, we can buy green gas or we cannot buy green gas. There's a 30% difference. Now, so we're making a huge investment into buying green gas because it's the right thing to do because we've got a commitment to be net zero by 2030. If you're going to be selling the business in three years' time, that is straightforward off the EBITDA. You know, is the capital sitting behind it really going to do that? I doubt it. Um, Really good example. We've also, you know, I mean, that's an operational sort of expense. Then you've got capital expenses. One of the things that causes the most, um, the biggest problem for our desire to get to net zero is we have a huge amount of refrigeration. Nobody ever talks about this, but people should talk about this. We have a huge amount of refrigeration. And a lot of the old refrigeration has got the most ghastly gases in it called 404, 430, stuff like that. When you release, if there's a gas leak and you release a kilo of this gas, it has a multiplier effect of 4,000. So suddenly you're releasing the equivalent of 4,000 kilos into the atmosphere. Now, in order to upgrade all of our older refrigeration, it's going to cost fortune. You know, your cost, you're looking at about a million, million and a half just in one kitchen. In order to be able to have new refrigeration that is powered by, ironically, CO2. So if you lose a kilo of CO2, you've only put a kilo of CO2 into the atmosphere. There's no 4,000 times multiplier effect. That's a huge, huge capital cost of the business. It's the right thing to do, but there is precisely no commercial benefit to it. But um, you can do it because you're you're growing the business for the long term and for the right. benefit. Society, whereas if there was investors involved, it would change your EBITDA and that wouldn't work. Yeah, the whole debate's become completely different. And this is why, you know, we're so lucky to, you know, be be in this position where we're still privately owned. I mean, it's come, there's been pretty big sacrifices as a consequence. I sort of mentioned earlier, I think, actually, we haven't paid two dividends. I think we've paid three dividends. Um, you know, it's, but the business has grown and clearly it's something of value. And we we live in a perpetual state of hope of jam tomorrow that, you know, ah, oh, next year. No, things are looking quite good now. We'll, we'll start paying dividends next year. And I, th- I think we might actually have got there. But um, the, how big how big is Cook going to be? I mean, what does your 10 year plan look like in terms of size of business? So um, so on the financial side, I'm just sort of doing finishing off a new fine, new five-year plan at the moment actually because the last three years have been hugely turbulent for obvious reasons COVID and then inflation last year was horrendous I mean in the space of four months went from doing really quite well to being oh my god all all the margins gone totally completely gone um we've sort of got things back on an even keel now but we're looking at five years and I've always I've always had this belief that 15% 15% is the most I would ever want to grow. I think if we 15%, you know, if you compound at 15%, you're going to double the size of the business in five years. 15% is a sort of outlier number. That would be the absolute maximum I'd be like to grow. I think if you try and grow, if we were to try and grow any faster than that, the quality of the wheels would fall off 
for the reasons I described earlier, because you just can't train, get enough good people, you'd be risking the culture. So 15% would be absolute max, 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 much more likely grow at about 8%, 9%. Um, I think we can do that through organic growth from the stores, like-to-like growth within the stores, the concessions, and then sort of opening five or six new stores a year, maybe 150 concessions. That is a sort of level of growth where I feel that we don't which provides opportunities for people within the business. Companies have to grow. If you're not growing, you're stagnating and going backwards. So eight or 9%, that provides enough growth to keep things interesting, exciting, opportunities for people within the business. So yeah, something like that. Well, that is just wonderful. And I I keep lobbying uh, our wholesaler here on the Isle of Man to get a cook concession uh, on the island. Who's your wholesaler? Robinson's. Ah, okay. I'll give, I'll drop in the line. See what we can do. Please do, or I'll connect you on LinkedIn. Can I? Yes, do yeah, do. She'll be, she'll be really cross at me now, Jana. But um, oh, please do because I'm putting her in a corner. But Jana, I would love to have some cook on the island. Well, we do loads in the Channel Islands, so we certainly should be. Well, there you go. I think you'll do really, really well here. You'll yeah. do really, really well here. Let's and listen, Ed, thank you so much for all of that. I hope we've inspired some younger founders um, out there listening to this to think about a different way uh, of running their business for the long term um, and making decisions for the long term, I, I I hope. And I wish you all the best. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and your company. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, Fiona. I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed the podcast too. So thank you. Thanks. It was so good to hear that you're a regular listener. Excellent. Thanks to the team at Strong Roots for their continued support this season. Good for you. Good for the planet. Good made easy. 